planted, setting the context, Paul had planted the Philippian congregation. He had come to them about a decade before this letter was written. We remember that uh, Philippi was mostly a military colony. They were fairly prosperous, uh, and they had a measure of independence, but they had not the gospel until Paul brought it over to them. This was a mostly Gentile uh, congregation. We know they didn't have enough uh, Jews within Philippi to have their own synagogue. And so they hadn't had the oracles of God. They hadn't had his word opened up for them until Paul brought it to them. And when he brought it to them, they received it with joy. And it became uh, a joy to his heart, this particular congregation, because of the fellowship that they had with them. And he kept them in prayer. This is one of the things that we're going to see as we go throughout Philippians. One of the most important things that we can do for our brothers and sisters in Christ is to pray for them. And indeed, part of the job of a pastor, of a shepherd, an elder, is to pray for the people under his care, to be diligent in doing so. Preaching the word is very important, but also praying for them is equally important. But before we uh, go to the Lord's word, let's go to the Lord who gave this word, and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Oh, sovereign Lord, we do now ask that you would help us to understand your word. These words given by Paul were not simply a, a thank you note sent to people long ago. They were instructive for us as well. They teach us how to live as a congregation of the Lord. We too, O oh Lord, were a church plant. We too were people who had the gospel brought to us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would help us to have joy in the gospel and that we would understand our place as part of the church, our fellowship with one another as we hear these words of Paul. Help me now to divide your word aright. Let me say nothing that goes against it. I do not want to mislead your people in any way. So, Lord, do not let me do that. Let me instead show them the straight path that leads to heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 8 tonight. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, in these verses, we have the beginning of Paul's pastoral prayer. This is just part one of uh, the way I wanted to divide it. I didn't want it to go on for too long uh, to try your, your patience, so I decided to split it into two sermons. Um, one of the things that you see as you go through Philippians and indeed all of Paul's letters, as you go through Acts and, and so on, is you see that Paul is a man who lives in two worlds. He is a man who has one foot planted firmly upon the earth in which he ministers to God's people, but he has another foot, doesn't he, in, in heaven. And he works equally between both places. He feels absolutely comfortable going to God for the Philippians. It's as normal for him to speak to the Lord on behalf of the Philippian congregation to lift them up in prayer as it is for him to speak to the Philippians themselves. This was a man who was heavenly minded but of oh so much earthly use as well. 
Now, there are only two letters uh, from Paul to the churches in which the salutation, that is, of course, his greeting, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, and so on, is not followed by hearty words of thanksgiving. That would be Galatians and Titus. In Galatians, he's obviously ticked. He immediately goes into, I marvel that you're already departing from the gospel. What on earth is going on, Galatian congregation? And that's why he doesn't follow it up with thanksgiving. Titus, he, he begins immediately expostulating on why he left Paul, uh, Titus, sorry, in Crete. And, uh, that is, but it's not his normal course. His normal course is immediately to remember whom he's serving and to give thanks. He immediately gives thanks, for instance, in this letter to not God, by you know uh, some sort of amorphous or or indescript sense not some group of deities in the roman pantheon and it was very common of course for pagans whenever they were doing uh, a salute writing a letter or so on to give praise to the various deities uh, the, uh, the especially the protecting deities of various cities but paul here gives praise to the to the glorious being, the sovereign Lord whom he serves, the only true God. He calls him my God. His words are, I thank my God. He thanks his God for what? He thanks his God for the Philippians. Now, the Philippians were a congregation that gave him joy, obviously. Unlike the Galatians who were causing him significant heartburn, uh, they were a people who, who he thought of fondly. And whenever he makes mention, note this, one of the things that we uh, see in Philippians is that it is a, it's a letter of joy. I mentioned before when I was doing the introduction how many times Paul uses the Greek word charis for joy and, uh, and rejoicing and so on, those commands. It's a letter that, that just thrums with joy. And whenever he thinks of things that are joyful, he immediately breaks forth into thanksgiving. He thanks the one who caused the joy in his heart. And Calvin notes rightly that this is a practice with which we ought also to be familiar. If something causes you happiness and joy in this world, it should be something that we give thanks to God for as the source of that, that great joy. It shouldn't just be our food that we thank him for, but every day with all of the things that he gives us that we don't deserve, those temporal mercies, those spiritual mercies, when somebody prays for us, when we have one of those encounters where we do have an opportunity to share the gospel and it causes joy in our hearts to be able to talk about our Savior Jesus, that should be something that we give him thanks for right there and then well Paul prays for them and he uh, although obviously he was somebody who was uh, who was captivated by the preaching of the word also he remembered that one of his primary callings as a pastor and an apostle in the church of Jesus Christ was to pray for them he thought of them much and although they were out of his sight far away although he was in a Roman jail suffering he did not feel distant from them because he had that communion isn't that a wonderful thing that 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 bond that believers share so that no matter what distance separates us yet we are always part of the same body we are always uh, together in Christ he was a great distance from them but they were never out of his mind he was constantly thinking about them and he was filled uh, with love and joy on the remembrance of them love and joy are two of the first fruits that are mentioned of the fruits of the spirit 
And joy is something that should give animation to our prayers. It should not be the case that all of our prayers are prayers of either supplication, I don't have what I need, uh, or of, of simply drudging toil, going before the Lord, well, I'm praying to you again because I know I'm supposed to. But rather, there should be a joy in our address. It shouldn't be that our kids are always coming to us <sighs> like that. You know, We should be going to our Father and, and thanking him and lifting up those things that, that give us joy. And Paul was given great joy by this congregation, these Philippians. They were a congregation that gives him joy. I almost posted today on Facebook, but I thought it would be too trite. I, I love my congregation. I just thought that as I was leaving uh, on Sunday. It was just an ordinary thought. I love my congregation. He loved this congregation, though he had been apart from them for many, many years. These were people who were always in his heart and on his mind. And as a good servant of the Lord, he always put them before God whenever he thought of them. Uh, Matthew Henry states, the best remembrance of our friends is to remember them at the throne of grace. Do you think of that? When you think of a brother or sister in Christ, what should we do? We should lift up an arrow prayer for them. It doesn't need to be something, you know, long or complex, but if they come to mind, Set them before the throne of grace. Bring them before the Lord. Even if it's just thanking the Lord for that person in your life, bring them before the Lord. Set them there. It should be that we are often going to the altar with requests on their behalf. Now, the immediate reason for his thanksgiving, when he is filled with thanksgiving uh, for this congregation, is to be found in verse 5, where he mentions their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then that's the immediate reason. But then in verse 6, he gives the ultimate reason for his joy, um, that he knows that that the one who has begun a good work within them is going to complete it. He sees the evidence of God's working in their midst. I must tell you, there is nothing that brings a pastor more joy than seeing, or should bring a pastor more joy, I should put it that way, than seeing the working of God in the midst of his congregation, building them up, changing them. One of the most wonderful things uh, in a long ministry to see, and it, it's had many men, uh, they change they change uh, churches very quickly, three years here, three years there, three years there. They don't get to see the long progress of sanctification as a result in the lives of their people. I have seen people who were literally at the end of their rope when they came to us. They were at the end of their tether. They had almost despaired and so on. They were sunk really low in sin. The devil really had his talons in them. And I have seen as they have been set loose from their bondage by the Lord and have grown in grace. And it is a wonderful thing to see. It is a miraculous and a supernatural thing to see. It is a great confirmation of the word in my life and its power. It's a reminder to me that the most important thing that I can do is to open up the power of God to the people who are assembled before me, not to give them my opinions, not to pontificate about politics or things like that, 
but rather to set forth the saving, healing, sanctifying power of the Lord Jesus Christ in their midst. Paul sees this. He sees the way that the Lord is working in their midst, and he sees it immediately as an evidence of the fact that the Lord has begun a work in them, and he knows that the Lord never stops a work that he has begun. He always carries it through to completion. And therefore, he is filled with joy. He sees that they are objects of divine preservation. They accepted the word that he brought to them when he brought the gospel to Philippi. They received it with joy. And then the great evidence of the Lord's working in their hearts was they continued on in it, the Lord preserving them. Therefore, they will persevere in the faith. That is something that we need to remember. It is not we who preserve ourselves. It is not we who desperately hold on to God. You know, let me go. That kind of thing. But rather, the Lord keeps hold of his children. He is the one also who sustains them. As a parent, he feeds us, strengthening our faith with the means of grace. Things like prayer, the reading of scripture, the preaching of scripture, the fellowship of the saints. Have you ever noticed that when you are apart from your brothers and sisters from an extended period of time, your faith begins to grow weak, to get low. It is when we are in the body of Christ, as the coals come together in the barbecue, they get, they get hotter. And so too, as we, glowing with fervent heat for, for Christ, are brought together, we transmit that to other people. And it should be that there's an infectious kind of, of joy amongst us. It doesn't have to be the the ridiculous, you know, happy clappy, jumping up and down, screaming at the top of our lungs joy, but there should be an undercurrent within the people of God of joy in the Lord and a, a, a sympathy and empathy that flows between us. Like members of a family, when one member of the family is out of sorts, the entire family is affected by it, aren't they? It doesn't matter how large your family is. If one brother or one sister is in a funk, you notice it immediately. And you desire to repair it because the entire body is out of joint, so to speak. So too, we need to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ. When they are out of joint, we need to do whatever we can to minister to them. The most important thing being, of course, to bring them to the throne of grace, to pray for them. And to ask simple questions like, how can I pray for you, brother? So on. That that perseverance to Paul is evidence sure of their election. It's very similar to what he says in 1 Thessalonians, incidentally, in verses two through four. That's another congregation that obviously he loved. Uh, he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, verses four, uh, through four, rather. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our, of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So what makes the pastor's heart rejoice within Paul? Well, it isn't that they sent him a gift while he was in prison. That was a sign of their love, obviously. He was very grateful for that. If people hadn't sent him food and clothing while he was imprisoned in Rome, he might have starved. That was important, but that wasn't just it. Nor that they were socially accepted within Philippi, that they were avoiding persecution and so on, or any of those things, or that they had the winningest softball team in Philippi, or maybe the Mason region that they were in, nothing like that. 
Not even that they were contributing regularly to the church or that they were going to buy him a new snazzy chariot, perhaps, when uh, he came to Philippi or any of those things. That's, what, that's not what animated his heart. That's not what gave him joy. He was thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. And that fellowship had uh, two different aspects. First, that fellowship with Paul and in his wider ministry. The Philippians had been providing for Paul, giving him financial support so that he might spread the gospel message. From the first day that he met those Philippian uh, believers as a missionary, they had entered into, through Lydia, for instance, bringing him into his home, had entered into that work of spreading the gospel throughout the world, throughout Europe in this case. And when he departed, the Philippians hadn't merely waved, said, bye-bye, Paul, and then forgotten about him. But rather, they had continued to support him financially, continued sending gifts so that his ministry might continue. Even when richer congregations, like the Corinthians, were not, the Philippians, yet they were still supporting him and giving him what was necessary that the gospel might spread. The Christians in Philippi, in a word, thought of themselves as part of, of Paul's missionary endeavors. They saw themselves as part of that body that was spreading the gospel message, the good news, the light around the world. I wonder, do you think of yourselves like that? Or do you think of yourselves simply as members of this particular congregation in this place, listening to messages on a regular basis, meeting together with one another, but not part of the larger community? When, for instance, Elder King or I go over to Uganda, do you think of yourselves as, as working to help establish teaching ministry in East Africa? Do you see yourselves as part of that? Or when we send a team over to Rwanda to begin setting up a, a seminary over there in Kigali, do you think of yourself as part of that endeavor? Not just supporting it financially, but supporting it in your heart with your prayers, lifting them up while they're away and until they come back and then rejoicing at the work that's going on or any of our missions endeavors? Do you enter into them in your heart, or do you just see that as something the church does? Are you part of it? I hope that you are. I hope that it's something that is important to you all the time, that it's your desire to see the gospel spreading through missionary endeavors. Now, obviously Paul saw them as people who were supporting him, but also supporting the work of the gospel in their own fellowship in that place. It was a fellowship that was real. It was a fellowship that was important. And it was a fellowship that was not man-made. They weren't part of a club or a society. Now, fellowship is something that, although we may not realize it, is, is very, very important. Um, I was, uh, I was just listening to a, uh, a podcast a little while ago, and it was about a, a surf ministry. This was a ministry that was started by uh, a Marine and a, uh, uh, a soldier. And basically what he had done is he had set up uh, an opportunity for people to, um, who had been in the military and who had been discharged to surf to go out and to enjoy the waves. And one of the things that the people that they were interviewing kept saying, they, they talked about, you know, there were, there were certain, you know, crunchinesses that irritated the living daylights uh, out of me, like the healing power of the ocean that was mentioned. But also, he made mention of the fact that, uh, all of them, as a matter of fact, made mention of the fact that there was a close fellowship that they missed. 
They had been in the army together. They had had that camaraderie, that, those strong bonds. But now they didn't have those bonds any longer. And they felt out of place in the world. Even those who had families, they, they longed for, for some sort of deeper fellowship. There is that desire in mankind's heart. We all, to a certain extent, understand at a core level without Christ that we're orphans that we're estranged from God. We feel alone in the world. Maybe not as deeply as French philosophers, you know, but we still feel that, that separation. And we try to find other ways to, to deal with it. We try to find ways of dealing with it through families and social clubs and so on. But there's a fellowship that, that can't be replicated anywhere outside of the body of Christ. Now, this was a military colony. These Philippians would have been members, most of them, who had served in the legions, that is, the men at least. And so they would have felt that, that there was strong bonds in the military, might have felt the, uh, the pain of having to part uh, from that organization, that man-made organization. But it is just a man-made organization. It is a fellowship that exists for a little while and then goes away. What Paul is talking about in terms of the fellowship that the Philippians enjoyed was a deeper fellowship because it was a fellowship in Christ. It was a fellowship that had happened because they had been effectually called by Christ, made part of the body. He was the magnet. They were drawn to him. They were drawn together. And therefore, they had that fellowship in him, in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and of course, his continuing ministry at the right hand of the Father. It was a fellowship of faith that they had entered into, Christ drawing sinners to himself through his redemptive acts and then applying everything that they need, building them up, making them more and more like Jesus and less like they were in the midst of that body. You were not called simply to Christ to be by yourself. You were called to be part of the body of which he is the head. And that's something that Paul makes very clear in all of his letters. Every part is needed. We may not feel it, but we, we absolutely need that fellowship in the body of Christ. Now, there are six aspects of that fellowship that we're going to see in this particular letter as we go through. At first, it is a, uh, it's a fellowship in prayer and thanksgiving. They pray for one another. They love one another. They give thanks for one another. They play, pray both individually for one another and then unitedly, like we pray in the evenings. That was one of the signs of it. Secondly, it was a, a fellowship with love for one another. Now, this isn't a natural love. It's not a love of affinity. There are organizations where people are drawn together because they have so many things in common and they love one another because of things that they see in one another. Rather, this is a love where we are brought together in the Lord Jesus Christ and we love one another because that's his command to us. Do you love your brothers and sisters that way? One of the things that I've seen in, in several churches I've gone to is, like in a high school, you can see these, these cliques forming. And it's the affinity groups. Oh, that's, there's the soldiers, there's the moms, there's the... And they have things that are attractive to one another. But it should be the case, brothers and sisters, that we have that more than just an affinity of reaction, but that rather that our hearts are filled with the love of Christ and therefore we love one another. It should be something that, you know, uh, the way that a parent loves even a disobedient child. I'm not saying that we should have disobedient children or that we should be disobedient children, but there should be a love that transcends the what have you done for me lately kind of barrier. 
but rather is grounded in the fact that we love one another because of Jesus. It's a fellowship also of helping one another, contributing to one another's needs. As, as the Philippians contributed to the needs of, of Paul in his ministry and then contributed to one another, taking care of one another, taking care of the widows in their midst, for instance. That should be a sign that exists not just in the, in the church in Paul's time, but today as well. And a fellowship, obviously, that's devoted to promoting the work of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it should be our objective, not merely to maintain a church here in Fayetteville, where we get along together, we like one another, we meet together, we do stuff together, we play cards together, whatever. It should be that our grand desire is to see the gospel spreading. Not just here in Fayetteville, but throughout the world. We should see ourselves as part of an organization that, that has a mission, and unless we're spreading the gospel, we aren't fulfilling that mission wherever we are. That is our calling, to go and make disciples of the churches. That's your calling and our calling together as part of the body. We're not supposed to be doing it individually, but working together to see that happen. It's a fellowship also, a fellowship in one sense of separation as well, a fellowship of, of drawing apart from the world and then coming together in Christ. There is a, a wonderful unity in Jesus that we don't find anywhere else. I, uh, when I'm out in the world for a long time, I, I long for being with believers. There's an abrasiveness, a corrosiveness, an otherness uh, in the world, I find. And then I come back to the church, and it's like being with family. It's one of the reasons why going over to Uganda, you know, you, in one sense, you move from one family to another. I still, I, I love my congregation back here, you know, uh, but it is, it's easier to travel in Uganda because you're surrounded by brothers and sisters all the time. Mostly brothers, admittedly, but, but some sisters too. And you have that essential unity, that affinity in Christ that exists, that ties us together. We are separated by miles and years and geography and all of those things, but we are together and we know we are united in the struggle to, to bring the gospel to the world, to bring the people in. And finally, obviously, it's a, a fellowship in warfare. We are struggling against a common foe. We have three great enemies. Who are our three great enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil, and we need to be struggling together against them. One of the reasons why the church has failed so badly is that we have not been united in that endeavor. We have not thought of ourselves as, as soldiers. You know, it's, it's amazing how you, you see this in, almost insta-unity um, growing up around political causes. Like, you know, I've, I've been, admittedly, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna go a little over the edge. I've been appalled to see how unified the world has been in supporting a terrorist organization that does horrible things worldwide. I watch, I watch as my, my homeland is I, millions, literally millions of people protesting. Such unity and such hatred of their enemies and so on. And yet within the church, we, we can barely get together for a prayer meeting. It would be wonderful if we were united in, in the common bonds of love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as readily as the world is in supporting evil causes. I, I, I hate to put it that way, but that really is it. But Paul saw their essential unity, their fellowship, and he loves it and thanks God for it. Paul ultimately gives thanks for the fact that God was 
grafting his image upon the Philippians, that they were being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He saw the way that God had begun that good work in them, and he was carrying it onwards to completion, that they were persevering and that God was preserving them, and therefore they were being transformed. He saw that they were moving towards an objective, and that's something a teacher obviously wants to see his students progressing. If you stay in the same grade, if you don't grow in knowledge, if you don't grow in your expertise in the subject, the teacher feels like a failure necessarily because the the person isn't growing up. In the case of a pastor, what does he want to see? He wants to see his people growing in grace and heading towards their final objective, which is that full conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of his return. He is working to see God formed within them and the gospel advancing, obviously, in Philippi. Now, he says God will carry on this good work. He's seen the beginning of it, and he sees that God is carrying on that good work, and he's looking for it to go onward till completion until it will be completed, as he says, on the day of Christ Jesus. And that day, of course, is the day of Christ's reappearing. It's sometimes called the day of Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord, the day or that day, the day when Jesus reappears and when salvation comes full circle. Even when we die, brothers and sisters, and we go to heaven, our salvation is not yet complete. We have that picture in Revelation 6 of the souls under the altar. And what are they calling out? What are they crying out for? How long, O Lord? because they want to see an end to sin. They want to see an end to the persecution, particularly of the church on earth. And they want to be reunited with their bodies. They want their day of resurrection to come. Paul looks all the way down the the road, sees where the Philippians are going, and he says, yes, they're traveling towards heaven, and they're traveling towards the day of the Lord, the day of the completing of their salvation, the parousia. On that day, he will be manifested in glory. On that day, those who have been mocked and persecuted as members of the church, they will be vindicated publicly. It will be a day where everything wrong is put right, a day when disease and separation and difficulties and turmoil and war, all of those things will be over forever. He looks to that day and he has joy forming in his heart because of the certain hope that if God began that work in them, he's going to complete it. That day will come for all of those believers. Now, let me give you just one application of this. It has two different parts, but it's one unified application. What is the great problem with the church? We look at the church and we have to admit it's not what it should be. There are so many different problems with it. We have splits. We are by uh, heresies torn asunder, by, or schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed, as the hymnist puts it. There are so many problems in our midst. We don't get uh, together or along as we should be. I mean, you have ridiculous situations, as I mentioned before, of Christians unfriending one another and expecting that they won't see each other in heaven because they blocked them or, you know, ridiculous circumstances where we divide over things that are inconsequential, where we aren't unified on the truth. We play mix and match and choose with Bible doctrine, saying, I like that one, I don't like that one, so we're going to push that one aside, things like that. The church is, is manifestly not what it should be. So what's the great problem with the church? Well, the great problem with the church, brothers and sisters, is that the church is not finished, that the work of God in her midst has not yet come to its full fruition. 
that he hasn't finished that, pro, that, that, that great process of, of building the church up to be what she should be. Now, related to that, you guys are part of the church. You individuals, y'all, sorry, are part of the church. What's your big problem? And you all have problems. You know, you, you, I, I know, I know you guys. You know I have problems. I know you have problems. Let's be transparent with one another. We sin. What's our big problem? Our big problem is we're not finished yet. That the practice and the process of sanctification has not yet been completed within us. That we are still on a journey. Now, we live in the world of fast food, instant streaming, everything. We want it all now, 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 now. But that's not the way organic growth goes. We have all of these GMO nightmare foods that are supposed to grow in 15 seconds and produce ridiculous harvests. And they're all, we're finding out, very bad for us. Sorry to let you know about that. But... That's because it's not organic, healthy growth the way God intended. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are supposed to organically grow, to learn, to mature, using the means that God has given to the church. One of the reasons why we have so many problems in terms of the non-existent practice of sanctification amongst Christians today is the fact that everybody expects it to happen immediately. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. Well, brothers and sisters, we're supposed to grow step by step to go from being infants to mature, to go from milk to meat and a gradual process of growth and being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, not until the day of the Lord arrives will that process be entirely finished in your existence. It's when Jesus reappears that everything is brought together. Let me, I, you should never, and this is just a public speaking thing, you should never pile two quotes on each other, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to go right against common sense here. I want to read two things for you because I think they're so very important about this. The first is this. It's written by William Hendrickson. A brick may have the appearance of a finished product, but it will still look rather forlorn until it is given its proper place in row and tier, and all the rows and tiers are in, and the beautiful temple is finished. So also God's children, like so many living stones, will form a finished temple when Jesus reappear, returns, not until then. Believers are like the dawning light that shines brighter and brighter unto the coming of the perfect day, for it is then that he who began a good work in them will have completed it. Do you understand that? Do you understand that it's not until the work, the edifice is completed and that you have your place in it that you will be truly finished? that you will have been conformed to the image of Christ, made into what he designed from the very beginning of time, before the beginning of time, as a matter of fact. Here's the second quote. This is by Edward R. Rustio, and he says, God's beginning the work is a pledge of its completion. What God begins, he will finish. The good work has its initiation and regeneration past, has its continuation and sanctification present, and will have its consummation and glorification future. In the past, there was God's unchangeable promise. In the present, there is God's unlimited power. And in the future, there is God's unbreakable promise. This is God's guarantee for the final preservation and perseverance of the saints. Salvation is all of God. God, who has begun a good work in you, will not forsake that work he is not like so many of us who start the project in the backyard. We start fixing the 68 Mustang, and then 10 years later, it's still rusting in the yard. God is not like that. 
He who begins the work will finish it. He will finish and crown the work of his own hands and he will perfect it. You will be perfected in the day of Christ's appearing. Do you know that? That should be a constant source of hope for you. Yes, I am not what I should be. But there is a day coming when I will be. And that because of God's working within me. That should be something that causes you constant hope. If God began that work within you, he will finish it. His work will be complete. The edifice, the entire church building of which you will be a part, you are a brick in that particular wall. In this case, it's a good wall. It's a wall that forms part of the edifice that he's always been building. You have a place in that wall. Know that. You may not feel like it, but God is going to put you where you're supposed to be and build you into what you're supposed to be. If he has begun that work by putting his spirit in your heart, uniting you by faith to Christ, then know this. Yes, you may struggle here on earth, but there is an end point coming to those struggles and sooner than you think. Hold on to that. Hope in Christ and have joy in it and celebrate it in prayer. Let's go before the one who gives us this great everlasting hope. Lord, we thank you that Paul prayed for the people of the Philippian congregation because he saw your work in their midst. Lord, it has been my great privilege to see you working in the midst of this church over the past two decades, Lord, to see you take people and form them into the image of Christ, to conform them, to round off the, the rough edges, and to begin putting them into their place in the edifice. I pray you would continue that work. I pray, Lord, that you would give all the members of this church who know you hope and confidence, and I pray for those who have not yet been brought to you, that you would do your working in their heart, that you would cause them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would know that if they go to him in faith, then he will receive them. In fact, he already has. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would, you would cause them, therefore, to surrender all efforts at building themselves into some sort of edifice, and instead to depend upon you, the master craftsman, to do that work.